Parking Podcast is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, the world's largest association for professionals in parking, mobility, and transportation. Learn more at parking-mobility.org. Hello and welcome to the Parking Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the $100 billion parking industry and the people that make it go. I'm your host, Isaiah Mao, and this is the Parking Podcast. Views and opinions are my own. Welcome back to another episode of the Parking Podcast. With us today is Jim Corbett, Director of Studies with Walker Consultants. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great, Isaiah. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for joining. And I like to ask uh, guests where or how they got into parking. I do know at some point along the journey, you worked in Ann Arbor, and I feel like half of the industry has gone through Ann Arbor. You got Mark Lyons and Sarasota, Wayne Mixdorf, and Lincoln, Tony Bassess. There's just a great group of managers that went through uh, Ann Arbor. So I think that's fun. But tell us how you got into parking, Jim, and how you got to where you are today. So uh, these are always good stories. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's always difficult. I think the, the more often I tell the story, the kind of the harder it is to remember all the details. But I was a young professional, obviously straight out of, out of, uh, out of college and had was kind of feeling my way around the, the professional sales kind of business market industry and had a had an industrial sales job that that I was kind of working not wholeheartedly but you know again that first job out of school and I, I stumbled across an opportunity to uh, work for one of the downtown hotels in Cincinnati and I ended up being a, a kind of a weekend part-time valet driver to kind of supplement some of the uh, the income needs at the time being in the sales industry and you know at the same time it was kind of a, a happening job to have because you were with the movers and shakers in downtown and yeah. had to drive some really nice cars in the process and you know for a young 20 year old that was kind of a, a pretty neat thing to do and so as the story unfolds you know I uh, get this opportunity this crossroad of you know, hey, Jim, would you like to, uh, we, we, we recognize you've got a lot of really good talents for this industry. You're good with people, you, you know, you, you take direction well, you're able to give direction, you know, all of those kind of kind of fundamental qualities that, that somebody would be looking for to, to develop a team around. And so they offered me this opportunity to, to run multiple hotel valets in, in downtown Cincinnati at the time. And again, this was probably Ooh, dating myself a little bit, but this was this was easily probably 30 years ago. And so the, you know, the kind of the story really took off from there. I, I said the heck with the sales industry job. You know, I got tired of that. And and the next thing I knew, I was growing from that valet kind of management position up to a, an operations director for the entire downtown team. And then they said, well, you know, we would like to reward you with a promotion to an area that needs help. And of course, that's, that's always the, the, the real true test of, of what we're all about. And so I ended up being shipped up to, uh, to a location in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And really, that's where the story kind of took off. I went from Minneapolis back to Ohio and ended up being in Cleveland. And then from Cleveland is, is what really brought me to, uh, to Ann Arbor. And, you know, I guess, you know, hearing you tell that opening narrative, it's, it's, Kind of along the lines of, you know, Michigan being the automobile industry kind of, you know, foreground, if you will. And so Ann Arbor almost became kind of the proving ground for for young parking professionals, I guess, in that sense. So 
you know, as you said, there was a number of us that came through that system. And, and it's, it's really great now to see all the people that came through that system really have grown into, you know, fantastic leadership roles. And so I continued down that route. And, and eventually it led me to the consulting position that I have now. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how it got started. And that's kind of where it ended up today. Now, that's a great story. Of course, uh, Jada Hallbrook's there now. She does a wonderful job. But I love that you started frontline, you know, uh, Romy Valera. He was a parking enforcement officer. Now he's president of IPMI or the board of IPMI. And you, lots, lots of others that just started and worked their way all the way up. So that's a great story. Um, now you're with Walker Consultants. I think I've had every single person that works for Walker Consultants on the podcast. I've had sure. Kevin White and Carl Schneeman, Chrissy Mancini Nichols, uh, Mary Smith, Andrew Vidar or Vider, yeah. and now you. So I know they're great, but tell us a little bit about Walker Consultants. Well, you know, as I mentioned, I started to mention, you know, my transition to Walker came out of a really an, an operations-based career. And um, I, I, I'm currently in Tampa. When I joined Walker, I transitioned from the parking director role at the city of Tampa to Walker. And I was, I was literally kind of one of a team of engineers in the Tampa office. There were probably about 15 folks in the office. And I was the only non- professional engineer outside of some accounting and some administrative folks there. So it's, it's been interesting to see just really in the past, probably, you know, five or six years since I've joined Walker, how Walker has, uh, you know, almost rebranded itself from the traditional parking engineer firm of designing the, the behemoth parking structures to really moving into more of a a, a, a one service does all and, and really kind of embracing more of the operations side, the technology side, the planning side. And now, you know, the new, the, the new buzzword mobility, you know, it's, it's not all about necessarily the, the automobile or the vehicle these days. And so it's been real f- interesting and, and quite enjoyable just to, to, to watch the firm kind of, you know, migrate from that 1980s, 1990s mentality of, of this is all we do to, you know, doing so much more today than, than the average design firm probably would have ever dreamed about. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I think that, you know, of course, IPI added the, the M to their name, became IPMI. I thought that was a great move to help parking professionals just get more involved with that part of it, just to save jobs or make you more valuable with your community by understanding that component, how it plays into downtown uh, transportation systems and all that. And another plug to IPMI, one of my strategic sponsors, you said you live in Tampa now. So are you going to the IPMI conference, which would be a short commute for you because it's in Tampa this year, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Right in the backyard. And it's, you know, I I think folks are going to be quite surprised coming to Tampa. The last time the IPMI conference was in Tampa was in 2007. And so that's, you know, we're talking now almost 13 years and boy, has has downtown Tampa really changed. The, The location of the conference being in the JW Marriott Hotel this year is just a fantastic site. And just to, just to really see how much has grown up in downtown Tampa not only just from the from the convention and, and hotel business, but now we're you know just an extreme explosion of residential development, 
and really making downtown Tampa more of a 24-7 downtown. And when I first got to Tampa in 2005, it was literally the, the, the gates rolled up at five o'clock on Friday and you didn't dare go downtown on the weekends because there was just nothing, no draw to bring you downtown. And so it's really going to be a neat experience, I think, for a lot of people that haven't been back to Tampa since the last show. It's also Championship City. I can't remember what they call it now, but I think they won the hockey and football. So are you a Bucks fan now or do you... Is it the Cincinnati Bengals? I don't know. Who do you cheer for? Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, by the way, it's Champa Bay. Is that's is, what it was? I knew it was a, a <laughs> I knew it was a cool little play on words there. There, it's right. Champa Bay. That's awesome. Yeah, right. But it's you know it's hard not to be a fan. You know when you're in an environment like that. I you know my my loyalty will always remain with with Cincinnati sports. Obviously, that's where I grew up and had my younger formative years and. While we don't win many championships nowadays in Cincinnati, it's you know it's still that eternal hope every year when the season kicks off. But uh, man, I'm a I'm a Lions fan, so you have nothing okay. to talk about. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think we're one of the three franchises that have yet to win a Super Bowl. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. Wow, that's good stuff. That's hilarious. So one reason I really wanted to get you on the show. Thanks for joining. I wanted to talk about this article that you wrote because it uh, hits close to home. I work in consult and help manage a lot of municipal programs. I know you co-wrote this with John Dorsett, but um, I think it was called A Case for Exclusive Pay-By-Sell. So uh, why don't you just kind of give us some background on this article, what inspired you to write it, and then I'll have some specific questions about the article. Sure. Well, you know, it was kind of interesting. We, our, our initial approach was really focused around urban or city or municipal environments that charge for on-street parking. You know, we really wanted to explore and get a handle on from a research standpoint, you know, how many cities out there were charging for parking. And that kind of had a little bit of a spin-off to, you know, the the rate alignment for charging for on-street parking because as we know so many cities are are still trying to kind of resurrect themselves if you will or or try to right align the appropriate price for charging a little more for curbside parking versus the, the the more longer term need of the off street parking. And so we were really toying around with a number of different angles with this particular article. And then, you know, the other piece that we so often focus with on our clients relates to, you know, how can we help them be better stewards of their programs? And, and often that really starts with, you know, financial management, um, you know, minimizing costs and providing solutions that are user-friendly, providing cost-affordable solutions, you know, all of those things that, you know, from our operator backgrounds, we were always focused on, you know, how can we, how can we generate more income to take care of more of our capital needs while at the same time kind of minimizing those daily, monthly, annual operating costs. And, and so, you know, we, we kind of delved into this idea of, you know, so many um, urban centers or municipalities have, a lot of them have, you know, over the past 10 years, probably really transitioned from you know, the older style single space meter to the to the multi-space kiosk. And and of course there's, you know, quite a bit capital involved with kiosks. There's quite a bit of operating and subscription costs involved with kiosks. 
And then, you know, probably really by more of, of sheer public demand, many of the municipalities have, have just simply overlaid, you know, a, a pay by phone or pay by cell component on top of that. And so, you know, it really almost becomes two competing payment options for people or, or you know, kind of a, a duplication of payment options for people. And, and we started to think, well, you know, it, it would certainly make sense to really, you know, take a good look at really taking a, a, you know, push, push towards, you know, why aren't more folks uh, in a position to where they can go to this pay by sell only? And, and the idea would be not simply abandoning the pay kiosk, but as, as systems expand, as, as, you know, urban cores and, and districts expand beyond what they were, this idea of, okay, maybe now it's time to strictly go to a pay-by-sell solution instead of buying more kiosks and expanding that footprint in downtown areas. And, and really, it was at the end of the day, I think, Isaiah, I think it was really focused on, you know, how can we reduce or, or help some of our client base reduce some of these heavy capital costs, subscription costs, and ongoing operating costs. And, and that's where it started. So we we, we had this idea of, you know, let's just use a simple sample database or a sampling of, of capital cities. And we found when we did the capital cities that I think out of the 50 cities, 43 of them actually charge a fee for parking curbside. And of the 43, 33 of them actually offer a mobile phone pay solution. And, you know, some of those may have that, you know, alongside of a single space meter in some of the smaller capital cities. Others may have the, you know, the robust uh, pay kiosk system scattered throughout their downtown. So that's really where it started from. And we thought, okay, this, this sounds like there's some pretty good material here to at least, you know, begin the discussion. Uh, many of our capital cities really are you know, they're designed as the government hubs, if you will, the commerce centers. It's kind of where a lot of things start when it comes to the state level for each well, of our, our state jurisdictions. That's what blows me away is that I actually think that's low. If, if 33 out of 43 offer mobile payments or pay by sell, like that seems low. It's why wouldn't every city have a pay by sell component? What, what, what would you think? Why would a reason, a, why would a city be opposed to it? Well, you know, certainly of the of the of the seven that don't, uh, obviously they're they're not charging that that fee for parking. But you know, I, I think. You oh, know, hold you on. At, Actually, are you saying that all of them that charge did offer pay by sale? No, no. I you, you had that correct. Of the of the forty three that do charge, only thirty three offer the pay by sell. Yeah. And and so some of those had a scenario where maybe the first two hours were free and then there was payment on top of that as, as an example. So you know, just kind of looking at some of the of the of the those on the list there, I mean, two of them, one being Honolulu and one being Anchorage, Alaska. You know, no, no rhyme or reason why they may or may not have a, a pay-by-sell component, but they're they're kind of outliers in that sense from a contiguous kind of US, if you will. But then you start to look at places that surprise me, like Des Moines, Iowa, or Springfield, Illinois. You know, those are two cities that I think are, you know, in, in pretty reasonable proximity to some, some other areas that you would think that a transition would easily occur. Topeka, Kansas was another one. 
again, these aren't necessarily main mainstream cities that, that one might think. Jefferson City, Missouri was the other one. Trenton, New Jersey, uh, Salem, Oregon. It, it's a little, little interesting in that sense. But, I, you know, I guess I don't know that I really have that answer as to why they yeah. would or wouldn't. I mean, these are cities that are generating, you know, upwards of, of in the millions of, 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 of dollars when it comes on an annual basis to parking revenues. So you would, you would think that it might be a logical transition. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I know there's still a lot of cities out there that still use paper tickets to issue parking tickets. That just drives me crazy with all the technologies to automatically upload them, to issue them from a cell phone or a handheld. Yeah, it blows my mind. But mobile payments, it just seems like such a great customer service tool. I get maybe there's some who owns the data or security reasons. Maybe a, a city is holding back, but I just thought every city would be wanting to do that. So and you mentioned a lot of the benefits, such as, you know, you're minimizing hardware on the street, you're you're lowering your capital expenses and ongoing software expenses. I would argue it's more customer friendly. You can pay by hitting two buttons on your phone in your car with the air condition on versus waiting in a line and sticking in a credit card multiple times till it reads. So, you know, I, I get there's a lot of benefits. Uh, what are some of the disadvantages of, you know, going exclusive pay by sell in your opinion? Well, I, you know, I, I still think, you know, we're, we're not necessarily quite there when it comes to, you know, there is still a population that's, as we know, and referred to as kind of the unbankable group. Do you have, I know you mentioned those in the, do you have that handy? You talked about that in the article. Do you have some of those stats as far as the unbanked and those that don't have a phone that you could talk about as well? I'm sorry to interrupt. I do have those stats. Yeah. And it it was rather interesting. This was Pew Research data that was available pre-pandemic and early 2019. But you know, I think when you look at, you know, the, the demographics as a whole, when it comes to, you know, who has a cell phone versus who has a smartphone, I think we find that, you know, roughly 92% of the, of the population or at least of those surveys actually are, are cell phone users today. You know, the other percentage are, are you know, what would be considered probably the unbankable or, or maybe some that are maybe bankable, but they just don't necessarily from an age demographic, they just don't, they're just not bought into or have a real need for the, for the cell phone component. So, you know, the percentages are high and they, they continue to grow. I think one of the, the graphics that we had in there showed almost a, a doubling from 2010 to 2018 of the percentages of U.S. adults who own a cell phone. I mean, that was right around probably 40% in 2010. And I'm talking smartphone at this point to where we see about 80% of, of the cell phone users are smartphone users today. And so when you look at comparable by cell phone growth in 2004, I think the number was around 60% of the U.S. adult population to now, as I said, it's, it's in that low 90s of, of folks that actually own the cell phone. So it's those kind of numbers that are certainly helping the argument in that sense. You know, I, I think when you look at, at you know, kind of income disparity or income gaps there, about a 25% of the population less than, that earn less than $30,000 annually are, are not smartphone holders. So that's, you know, again, it's, it's tied to somewhat of an income stratification there, if you will. When you look at, at those that live in urban environments, you know, there's about 13% that aren't smartphone holders. Uh, those in the more of the suburban location, it's interesting. 
you know, a very similar in percentage there, but where the big drop off is the further rural you go, there's probably about 25% of the folks rural that really aren't smartphone users. But, you know, Isaiah, I think when you look at that demographic, you, you begin to think, well, how many of the rural demographic uh, is really coming to the urban centers on a frequent basis? You know, I, I think many of them are either they're coming for kind of a one shot opportunity for either some sort of a sporting event or a concert event. Maybe they're only coming to an urban environment because they have a federal or a county court obligation that they have to comply with, or perhaps they're seeing, you know, an attorney or somebody on a professional service basis. But, you know, I think those uh, that, that choose the rural location as a way of life, you know, they're, they're there for a reason. And, you know, it's, it's real interesting to, to kind of get an understanding of, you know, why that's important and why that's not important. Yeah, that's great feedback. We'll talk about that, which you, the equity concerns, you know, that's, I think what makes cities special, as you know, is their mixed use diversity. And that's the question. If you can accommodate 99.99% in a better way, you know, but you still have that point zeros at that one in a thousand that can't part because of this. Can you, can you do something like this? I have another question kind of off topic, throw you for a loop here, but can you think of anything that requires you to have to do something over the phone, like, you know, airplanes, you can still print your, your ticket, but the majority of us are doing, using the app and boarding with our phone. I would say 99, again, 99% of us are, are using the app, but I can't think of other areas in life. Maybe if I think about it further, I can think of something that you don't have a choice. You have to do it on your, on your phone. It is moving that way. I think in the future passports and driver's license, I think soon that will all be on your phone. I think we are moving towards that. But as you said, there's still the the 3% that don't have a phone, the 2 or 3%, the 5 or 6% that don't have a bank. But I think that you can be unbanked and still pay with the phone. Or am I wrong there? I'm thinking you, 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 can. you can buy a pre- Right. Yeah. Explain that process. Yeah. I think you so there's that a couple of options there. Um, you know, one is the is the prepaid card that a lot of of you know promotional opportunities will will provide when it comes to this. You know, as an employer or as a business, you could be a, a you know a distributor of a pre, of a prepaid card that would enable you to do phone transactions in that sense. And then actually, you know, you can, there are oftentimes 1-800 numbers that are actually posted in these pay-by-phone type environments where you can, you can call and actually speak with an operator, um, an in-house or an outsourced operator that will eventually take your information over the phone and, and you can certainly pay by that way. But again, it, I think it still requires the opportunity to have a, a credit card. Or a or gift card, right? You know, they could buy card. a pre prepaid $50 Visa gift card or something. Correct. But yeah, so but there are can, ways. Yeah. You can do it without having a smartphone or downloading the app. You can actually use it and then your 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 uh, phone number becomes your caller ID for, for future transactions in the near term. So it's it's a service, of course, that is still being offered. And I think that's a good thing, especially as you're you're trying to get more folks to transition in that in that vein. But it, it's not necessary. You don't have to have the ability to download an app just yet. Do you know of any cities? Are there any case studies that have gone mobile payment only? And do you have any stories to share about that? Well, I, I know we talked, and I believe you know you talked with Alex Argadin with uh, the city of Miami. And I would add that uh, the city of Miami Beach is moving in that same direction, to where they've they've made the decision to 
deactivate all their pay kiosks and their rights of way and gradually remove them from service to go towards the the pay by sell exclusively. You know, I think the big telltale or or for those that become really metric focused, I think that's the key that's going to help cities make this determination. I mean, if you're if you're constantly monitoring the percentage of transactions by credit card at the kiosk versus payment through a mobile app, and you find yourself that you're doing less and less transactions at certain kiosks throughout your, your, your footprint of kiosks, now you've got that decision-making tool that you can, you don't necessarily need to add new kiosks. You yeah, can- that, that's exactly what Alex said in Miami. It was a, a slow process, just kind of block by block. block. If they found that 90% of payments were app, you know, they would you know, and they needed to replace the kiosk or meters, they would just remove them um, and use those spare parts or use them on other blocks. But I like also, we've had Robert Farron on the podcast from the city of Columbus. He likes yes. the asset light approach. I know that's a buzzword in the industry, asset light. So correct. You know, it used to be a kiosk. I think, you know, the best practice was every eight to 12 spaces, you need a kiosk. You never have someone cross the street. Now, you know, you could put... <laughs> one kiosk in the heart of downtown. If you're cash only, you can go pay for this zone. It'll allow you to park anywhere, you know, I, exaggerating, but this asset light approach. So maybe one kiosk for every 20 to 30 spaces with, you know, because mobile payments keep going up. But I, I like that approach as well. But what, what are, do you think some of the best practice you recommend if cities were flirting with this idea? You talked about looking at the data, slowly phasing out meters. Uh, anything else you'd recommend? I think the easiest thing to do, Isaiah, is let's say you've got a, a you know, kind of a bounded uh, area of, of on-street payment with kiosks already, and, and you're looking at, you know, introducing or revitalizing kind of a neighboring district and really understanding what the users of that neighboring dist- district might, might look like. In other words, if it's becoming more of an entertainment district versus a, a financial district, if you will. I think you know a, a logical explanation would be there. Folks have seen the kiosk; they've been already using the pay by sell app. Why not explore an opportunity to as you bring this additional neighboring district online of going straight to pay by sell, just extending the current sign packages that you have for pay by sell in the financial district, and now you're you're a little better aligned to have an adoption rate be a little more successful. In, a, in an entertainment district. And the idea is that, you know, folks that patronize entertainment districts are, are doing more things from an electronic basis. You know, they're, they're used to paying more by credit card transaction, used to doing more things by phone from a, from a social media approach. And those are kind of things that often go hand in hand with, with places like entertainment districts. So I think it's important to, to kind of take a look at that. In addition to that attrition reproach, you know, we do talk a lot about, you know, these, these, destination districts as well too little little different from an entertainment district but my example of a destination district might lend itself we see a lot more of it down here in the southeast along the coastal communities where most of the folks that come from the interior portions of the US are already in an urban environment they may already be using a cell phone app to pay for their parking and now they're going someplace for a one-week vacation or a two-week vacation. And it makes perfect sense to 
continue that experience of paying by mobile app in some of these uh, com- uh, coastal towns. And, and a lot of the coastal towns have, have, you know, over the past recent probably five years, maybe a little longer, are starting to experience more and more of this rapid growth and, and, and densification, if you will, to the point where they have more short-term or day trippers that are coming into these communities that they can no longer provide that free unregulated parking. It's, it's now become the point where they've got to start charging for parking so that they can obviously create kind of a fund source and a revenue stream to eventually take a look at, at building and constructing more off-street parking to be able to handle this demand. So it's, it, it kind of lends itself to an appropriate transition, which, which almost brings up another topic of you know, I'm I'm in Florida, and all of the destinations that I go to in Florida, there must be a good four or five different mobile apps that I have downloaded to my smartphone. And it's real interesting that from one neighboring city to another, I may have to transition from one app to another, and that can be a little annoying. And and you know, ideally, you know, I think we've heard some of the discussion here more lately of communities, you know, adopting multiple mobile payment platforms within their community. So you just don't have to use a park mobile or a pay by phone or a passport. You can use these regardless because now this destination district accepts all those mobile apps as as payment platforms. And, you know, eventually I I think it's going to lead itself towards more of the Google and the Amazon kind of one-stop shop, but that's that's probably for another podcast at another time. But um, you know, I, I think this this idea of being more accepting and more inviting of your user group is is only going to benefit cities in the long haul. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I I think I sent you an email. I had three thoughts. If if you were going to flirt with pay by sell only, I would say only do it if you offered multiple apps, like you said. Just it's not hard, but it is annoying when you have two apps. You go to a new city. Oh, I got to download a new app. I got to put in my credit card info. I got to send an email, confirm it, put in the six-digit code. Yep. Uh, put in my information. Take a picture of my plate. You know, it's just like you're just frustrated. Your clients at lunch waiting for a meeting, and you're having to set up. So, if you have multiple apps, likelihood is that, especially like you said, in a tourist destination that they will have another app. And there's some other companies out there that are working on that. You know, Google's Google Maps is doing that. And there's some other that help consolidate that. So you're looking at one report instead of having to pull three or four different reports. But um, I also like if you're going to do this, if you're going to do this, I recommend having a solution to pay without downloading an app. So there's some really cool technologies in there. I'm trying not to drop the company's names, but you can tap a sign and it, you know, it pulls it up and all you do is pay on your phone. You don't have to download the app. You just put in your credit card info. Sometimes that's saved, makes it really easy or or some sort of text to pay solution. Or like you said, sometimes there's a 1-800 number that you can call and pay. So just again, offering multiple solutions to accommodate, to make it as least, to make it as easy and least inconvenient as possible. And then my third recommendation is have some kind of assistance. So maybe on the on the signs, you know, need help, don't have cash or need help, don't have a credit card, something called this number. So maybe you have to hire another ambassador to help run out from time to time to help someone, but that's going to be way cheaper than a hundred kiosk and the ongoing costs. But 
those are just my options. If you're going to do it, those are some things I thought of. Does that make sense to you? Do you agree or have anything to add or disagree with any of those? I would agree with that, Isaiah. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, those are, those are surefire, you know, great recommendations to make sure the program's successful. Because, if, you know, obviously, if you're just going to throw it out there and, and not expect to support it or encourage people or, or, you know, get media blasts out there so that people understand it, it's, your, your program's going to get a lot more pushback. And as we well know, it doesn't take long for, for local media to get a hold of this stuff because they, you know, they want to write about stories that, that aren't very well introduced and supported and successful. And that's, as we know, that's the kind of stuff that sells, you know, newsprint and media and things like that. I just thought about this when I don't know if any cities still do this, but I remember early in my career, there were these in-vehicle meters where I think it was more for accessibility if they, had, if they couldn't, you know, they couldn't pay a meter for a physical reason. Yes. You, you would... I don't know. I mean, I guess you pay $50, you get some kind of device that goes on your dashboard. And when you want to park, you hit some buttons on it and it, it serves as a meter. The city got their money. The, the meter, the enforcement officers will look at that. I just thought about that. I mean, that may be a great way for the equity or accessibility issue. Yeah. We have solutions for those. We want everyone in our city. We want everyone to have a convenient space, a convenient experience. So we have different solutions. But again, I, I don't know if anyone's still doing that because that might be a good uh, solution to bridge the gap. Yeah. I, 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 it's funny you bring that up because when I first got to Tampa you know, 15 years ago, we had the in-vehicle device that um, you could preload funds onto it and it had a digital display to screen and you would actually have to start it and it would start decrementing time. And and as an enforcement officer, you you would know to check somebody's dashboard or somebody's window to, to make sure this was the case. And it, it never really took off as well as we thought it would. And, and you know, I think a lot of that might have to do with whatever the municipality's rate structure is. If, if you're at a 25 cent an hour, 50 cents an hour, you know, most folks I guess at the time, 15 years ago, probably had a lot of change in their pocket, but I guess we don't see so much of that anymore today. But, you know, the other challenge with it, you know, from that kind of that beta version of that device was, um, you know, proprietary batter, batteries. And when the device failed, you simply had to throw it away and purchase a new one. And, you know, I would think with technology today, you, you could come up with something better in that sense. But, you know, I, I, I know that many of us, yourself included, are, are we're learning about, you know, the, the, the newest in-vehicle technology of, of having your vehicle, of course, be your, your smart device and eventually being able to communicate to kind of a, a payment area or a payment destination, if you will, that, that's, you know, marked by an on-street space. And I think we'll, we'll probably see that obviously come around sooner. I mean, I know there are some automobile uh, Manufacturers already moving in that direction that's out there, but I, I would suspect as as technology advances, we're going to begin to see more of that, and it will be up to you know the, the existing kind of hardware and software companies to be able to accept that payment connection there. And um, you know, I, I know again we're we're dangerously there already in many sense, but but it's you know we're still not quite near towards uh, full full introduction just yet. Yeah, that's spot on. All right. So my last question, I guess, if COVID never happened, would we be having this conversation? You know, I know uh, when COVID happened and at first we thought it could be transferred on surfaces and touch and 
So every city was mobile payment only, even in the garages, you know, pay in your phone, don't pay by phone. We're bagging the meters, you know. So now I've said, you know, my my parents, elderly, they 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 now know how to order f- food on Uber Eats. My kids who knew nothing about Zoom now know Zoom better than me and how to change their backgrounds and all that. So it just kind of COVID forced us to to adapt and, and learn new technology. So do you think we would still be here or did that help accelerate this this move to pay by sale only? I think it certainly helped accelerate it, no doubt. I mean, there was, you know, for the first six months, if not longer, you know, everyone was still trying to figure this out, you know, and you didn't know if it was what it was related to and what would cause the spread of it. And, you know, was it truly this surface contact type of a, of a, of a transfer? And, you know, we, we were actually putting the article together in advance of the pandemic. So we were, we were moving forward with this article already, but I, I certainly think it, it, you know, it certainly helped accelerate kind of the, the adoption of this technology or the awareness of it. Like you've said, you know, your, your parents and, and your, your kids are now using technology that they probably would have never used before. So I would have to say, yes. Yeah. We, we would have eventually gotten to this conversation. It's probably just happened a little sooner because of what we just went through. Oh, that's great. And so how can uh, listeners learn more about this or how can they connect with walk consultants if they want to possibly start doing this in their communities, what's the best way to get a hold of you or Walker Consultants? So the best way for me, of course, is I would say for the company in general, um, you know, we're spread out over 15 offices around the country. The best way would really be to go to our, our company website, which is walkerconsultants.com. And once you're on that website, you can see our various locations. You can drill down into those locations and find individuals like myself that do more of the planning operations and technology, uh, not so much the engineer side, as I probably already mentioned. But there's probably a good 30 of us uh, within the firm that, that are really focused on more planning operations and technology. And, and again, you've, uh, Isaiah, you've mentioned you've talked with at least half a dozen of them already. And, um, you know, so from a geographic standpoint, we're pretty well spread out to the various regions of the country. But of course, my uh, contact information was in that article. It's, it's Jay Corbett at walkerconsultants.com is, is probably the best way to reach me. Yeah. And I'll put that website and your email in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jim. So when you're not doing parking studies or writing about pay by sell exclusivity, what do you like to do for fun? And I may have a guess. I think I've seen on one of your social media platforms, you holding a big fish. So I'm assuming fishing <laughs> is one of those hobbies, but tell us about what you like to do for fun. Well, it's, it's really a little more than that, to be honest with you. I, you know, it's hard not to enjoy the outdoors here in the Southeast when you're in the, you know, kind of the coastal and uh, environment that we down here. But but what's one of the, the interesting things about myself is as much time as I spend around people and technology and urban centers, my ideal kind of download or, or getaway is my, my wife and I, Claudia, love nothing more than to backpack the national parks. So these are, these are multi-day trips to where we're living out of a 35, 40-pound pack of of supplies on our back. And we're probably hiking anywhere from 20 to 35 mile loops or out and back type trails and drinking water out of streams and living in a tent. And uh, I just, it's, it's odd when I bring this up to people, they say, well, it kind of makes sense as much as you're around 
all that technology, why wouldn't you want to take a break from it sometimes? But my wife, Claudia, will tell me, you know, it's, it's ideal because I, I have to stop working. I can't answer emails and I can't return phone calls when I'm out in the wilderness. Yeah, I, I, I go, 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 you know, have the job, do the podcast on the side, working on a lot of other projects on my own time. But I go hard, man. But when I take time off, I also go hard. I, I rest and I, I, you know, if I'm on vacation or, or hiking or camping, I won't dare look at my phone because I just go all out. But we could talk all day because I would say one of my favorite things in the world is the national park system, America's greatest idea. I've, I'm trying, there's, I think there's 63 of them. I'm trying to do all of them. I'm at 21 right now. I did Yellowstone for five days earlier this year. There's nothing better in life than being in those national parks. Man, I can't wait to talk to you about that over drinks sometime. Yeah, we're trying to do the same thing too. But unfortunately, you find one of those good national parks that you got to keep going back to. There's just so many hiking trails and you kind of want to see every every plateau. (laughs) That's the thing. So I've done 21 of them, but some of them are, you know, I'm driving through on a work trip and I'll take five hours, but you could spend five months in a park and still not get it all. So I really like what, what you're doing where you you know, take a tent and just live off the, the land. But man, yeah, you're right. Like Yellowstone is three states. It's They said the average person drives 3,000 miles when they visit yep. in the park, in the park, not 3,000 miles to get there. But in and there, People yeah. don't realize it's, it's that big. Like you could spend a year there and not yeah. touch it all. But Well, and then the yeah. Tetons are right there too. I mean, that's, yep. that's on the Southern border, right? Yeah. I did that one too. Yeah. They're connected. And yeah, I spent four or five days, but counting both of them, but that's really, usually it's one, two days, but I'd love to get a camper and, and really spend a week at each of them. My brother, he lives near the Badlands, So he, he does that. He has a camper. He does a lot of the national parks as well, but it's man, if I can encourage our listeners visit those national parks, they're so special, but yeah, I, I'm getting off topic here, <laughs> but uh, Jim, man, Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I I thought the article was great. If I can, I'll put a link to the article in the show notes as well so you guys can uh, listen to sure. that. But Jim, thank you so much, man. Have a great week. Isaiah, thank you. Have a good week too. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Please leave us a review and tell a friend about our show. It would mean a lot. This has been a production of Synchronicity Media. Produced by me, Isaiah Mao. Our music and score is by Zona. Our show art and design is by the talented Allison Gilly. You can follow us on social media at The Parking Podcast, or you can find our website with bonus content at parkingcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. This episode is brought to you by Parker Technology, the customer experience solution of choice in the parking industry. Parker's solution puts a virtual ambassador in every lane to help parking guests pay and get on their way in under a minute. Parker helps capture revenue, provides better customer service, enables your staff to focus on other on-site tasks, and keeps traffic moving, all according to your business rules. With the Parker solution, you'll also enjoy access to real-time call data and recordings. Learn more at helpmeparker.com slash parkingpodcast. Are you interested in your parking organization becoming APO, Accredited Parking Organization Certified through the International Parking and Mobility Institute? Or perhaps you're interested in one of your green garages becoming Park Smart certified through USGBC? 
Well, the Parking Podcast is here to help. Our Parking Accreditations Consultants Network will ensure you are matched with the best site reviewer or green garage assessor available for a fraction of the price. Learn more at parkingcast.com slash consulting. This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, publishers of the industry's only soup-to-nuts textbook about all things parking. It's called A Guide to Parking, and several of our guests from previous episodes have contributed to this wonderful little textbook. Learn more and order your own copy at parking-mobility.org textbook.